Coming up on today's show, the United States staging a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. Should Canada do the same? Ken Coates will join us to tell us that Canada's failure to properly respond to protests actually threatens democracy and the rule of law. And we'll get a history lesson on Agnes McPhail, Canada's first female MP elected to the House of Commons. It'll be interesting to see what Canada does now and a lot of eyes on Ottawa in terms of our diplomatic mission to the Winter Olympics. The Olympics are now less than two months away. I think they start Feb 3, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere around there. So less than two months away now. The U.S. announcing yesterday that, yes, they will stage a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Games in Beijing. Will Canada follow suit? Uh, let's have a discussion about this now with Dr. Angela Schneider, who is the director of the International Centre for Olympic Studies at Western University. Doctor, thank you for your time. appreciate you joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, just give us your reaction. I don't think this comes as a huge surprise in some circles, but um, your reaction to the United States announcing they will have a diplomatic boycott of the Games. Yeah, so I, I do think that it's the right move instead of a full boycott because I don't think that the athletes should be forced yeah. not to go. I think it should be each individual athlete's decision on whether or not to go. So, you know, we're doing this for human rights, so then why would we take away the voice of athletes to do it? <laughs> doesn't make sense. So this does make sense to do it as a diplomatic uh, boycott because now you see already that the attention is being drawn to it uh, by the world media and people are asking why, why are you doing this? And in that explanation, people explain the human rights issue. And and you're right, and I think that's a consideration that was talked about uh, in the United States. Uh, Aaron O'Toole in our country yesterday saying, um, you know, we want to have the diplomatic mission, but we have to be very considerate of the of the athletes. So I think that point that you're making, people are very cognizant of the fact that athletes have sacrificed a lot, and these opportunities don't come around that often, and that's a big factor in this. And that's been a recent shift, because the yeah. first time Aaron O'Toole called for the boycott, he called for a full boycott, and, and he was... Uh, the, he got feedback from athletes and other people saying, you know what, we don't want to harm our own people to be able to make a statement about this. And he has shifted his position, which is a really good thing because people are learning from this that our own athletes need to have a voice. When we talk about our athletes, and as you say, it should be up to them whether or not they want to go. I can't think of any cases where any athletes have said they don't want to go, either for political reasons or safety reasons. Are Am I missing any? Are there some athletes that are taking a stance here? There have been some professional athletes okay. who have spoken out. Now, that's quite different. I yes. think we need to note that because the professional athletes, they have other options. <laughs> you know, they, they're making money in other areas and, and, and they get other chances through their professional competitions. So the Olympics doesn't quite mean the same thing to a professional athlete who has a full-time salary and something else. And the opportunities for some of these other athletes, there's nothing else. Yeah. You know, and so it's a it's a, a greater distinction and decision. And so the question then becomes, well, some of them have said, well, why can't I do something by actually participating and drawing light to the attention to the issues when I'm there or when I just come back? So that when we've got the world's attention and I can also speak to that when I'm interviewed. That certainly makes sense. Um, what kind of an impact would a diplomatic boycott have on China, do you think, or the Olympic movement in general? There's a lot of people very critical that the Olympics were given to China to begin with. Um, how much of a statement is it really, or is it just countries taking a stand with really not much coming from it? 
I actually think it is a statement, particularly for China. I don't know if you saw that they were already responding before the Biden administration formally said they were doing a diplomatic boycott. The Chinese response was there would be some form of retaliation response. So they're watching, they're listening, and China does care about diplomacy and does care about the thing. Does that mean they're going to change their practices with the particular issues that we're asking or drawing attention to right now? Probably not, but it will generate the discussion just like it is now, like you and I talking about this. And in fact, that brings more attention and puts more pressure. But it has to also be done in tandem with other things, the things that do make really big difference, like economic sanctions. Um is there any concerns about safety here? Uh, when we talk about, you know, when the Chinese say they're talking about, um, you know, firm uh, response, they will react, they won't take this lying down. We know what's happened with the two Michaels and things like that. Is that something that's on the radar of Olympics officials in Canada and the athletes in terms of, is our safety at risk here? Well, I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable for Canadians in particular to raise yeah. this question after what we just experienced with the two Michaels. But there are some significant differences here. China has invited our Canadian athletes as guests to their country. Okay. And to then cause any harm to a guest that they have invited to our country, well, that would be extremely radical. I don't even know if China would do that. Like, I think that, I mean, I'm not an expert on Chinese diplomacy or China. My area is sport in the Olympics. So harm to athletes at the Olympics has happened in the past. We had the, 19, the 1972 Munich massacre, but that was not the host government or the host country attacking athletes. There was terrorist attacks. So I think it would be extraordinary. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I I guess anything's possible, but I think you're right. That would seem, that would be like an act of war in my mind, actually. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It would be declaring war. Absolutely. Okay. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Angela Schneider, who is the director at the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. We're all proud of the men and women who train so hard to wear our maple leaf. They should also wear our values abroad as well. So we're, we've been proposing moving the games. There, there wasn't any interest by the Trudeau government in that. We've proposed a diplomatic boycott. I think that's the best thing we can do alongside our allies. That's Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole yesterday saying that uh, the Conservative government does support a diplomatic boycott and thinks that's the way that the Liberal government should go on this file. Uh, he's not alone. The federal NDP party saying the same thing. Uh, Heather McPherson is the NDP MP for Edmonton Strathcona. She's also the critic for foreign affairs and international development. I spoke with her this morning just before we went to air. Uh, Heather McPherson joins us now to talk about the U.S. diplomatic boycott and whether or not Canada should be involved. Now, Heather, I want to start with the fact that you couldn't go anyway. You are banned from China. I mean, that, that's an important consideration here. They're, they're taking diplomatic action long ago, right? How does that fit in? Well, yeah, I mean, from, from my perspective, the fact is that, that China has already um, taken steps to, to, to 
you know, have a hostile relationship with, with parliamentarians in Canada. Uh, they banned, um, they banned the, one of the committees that I work on, the International Human Rights Subcommittee, uh, because we did do a study on the Uyghur genocide and we did declare that it was a genocide in, um, in China. Uh, so, so if we did decide to send a diplomatic um, mission to the, the Beijing Olympics, I couldn't go. So already the Chinese government would be determining which members of our parliament, which members, um, which representatives of our democracy could or could not attend as part of that, that Canadian uh, diplomatic mission. Um, so obviously you're in support of a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming games then? Absolutely. The NDP have been calling for this for a long time. You know, we, we had initially called for the, the Canadian government to, to ask the IOC to consider other locations for the Olympics to happen, um, you know, to, to look at whether or not we can move the games. Now, of course, that wasn't done, and it's much too late now to move the games. So, and, and, and I have no interest whatsoever in punishing the athletes who have spent their lives preparing for these for these games, so so I think that the diplomatic mission is is our is our best choice that we have right now, um, having left too late the opportunity to change the location. Yeah, and you mentioned the athletes, and I know that's a consideration for just about everybody who talks about boycotting or some sort of action against uh, the Chinese government and their hosting of these games. They say they don't want the athletes to suffer. Um, this seems to be the only way to get the best of both worlds, if you want to call it that. Yes, and you know what? I also think that athletes have the should have the, the opportunity to decide for themselves. I do think that athletes, if they choose to to not attend those games because because there is a genocide happening in China right now against the Uyghur people, that they that they have that opportunity to make that decision. Um, but but that they also could go and and compete. I mean. Listen, when I was growing up, I was an athlete. We all know what these what these athletes do to to be in such in such prime condition to to compete at this level. Um, nobody wants to take that away from them. Um, Heather, how does this, does this fit into the larger conversation of China Canada relations, which I think we all admit have not been ideal? A lot of Canadians feel we've been extremely soft and weak, and actually bullied quite a bit. Um, is this an opportunity to to stand up and sort of assert ourselves and say uh, the rule of law matters to this country? To be honest, this is a pretty low bar for that. I mean, you know, we've already seen the UK make this take this step. We've already seen the US take this step. Um, our our federal government has not been strong on China. We have not had a coherent, a cohesive sort of strategy on how to work with China. And and I'm not naive. You know, I recognize that Canada is a middle power. We're not a we're not a a superpower by any stretch of the imagination. But we do have a role in the world to work with our allies, to work with, you know, the UK, the US, Europe, all of those countries to start working harder to bring the the Chinese government back onto the side of international law, you know, back onto the side of human rights. And and we haven't done that. We haven't really been coherent on whether we're interested in trade, whether we're interested in human rights, you know, and and I think there's a way through for all of that those things to happen. We just need a bit of a stronger plan. Now, the fact that, that the Ambassador Barton has, has tendered his resignation gives us a bit of an opportunity. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for what um, Ambassador Barton was able to do to get the two Michaels home. Uh, but this is a restart. We can put a new ambassador in there that, that can, you know, shepherd in a, a, different, 
a different strategy with China as we go forward, I think. And I think, you know, you mentioned the two Michaels, and that's the concern that some people have, is what are the repercussions to taking any sort of action against the Chinese government? We know they'll respond, as they did with um, Mm -hmm. the two Michaels. So, um, you know, are athletes at risk? Are other Canadians at risk? I guess that's the fine line that our government says they're walking. Are you cognizant? I mean, how worried are you about repercussions for Canadian citizens? I think if we're at the table with with our allies, if we're at the table with other with other countries, it, the the opportunity for China to to do that is much less um, and much less severe. So so you know, first of all, we have to say you know, as wonderful as it is to see the two Michael back with their loved ones and with their families, there are still Canadians that are being held with with. Um, hostage diplomacy in in China you know Hussein Salil is has been there for 15 years as a as a hostage of the Chinese government he is a Canadian citizen uh so already that that idea that if we tiptoed around China that this wouldn't happen is has proven itself to be quite quite an erroneous path you know we have an obligation to work with our allies we have an obligation to work with with all those countries that are interested in the rule of law and and human rights to to make sure that China comes on board. And we have have other tools as well. You know, there is soft diplomacy. We do have a significant trading relationship with China. Uh, We can develop trading relationships with other countries in the region. We can develop, you know, more ability to to protect our own supply chains by having our capacity to manufacture in this country increase. So there are, there's lots of things we can do. It's, it's just, it's charting the path and then following through with that path. Right. So where do we go next? We've got, as you said, the U.S. taking their step. Uh, Aaron O'Toole yesterday calling for a Canadian diplomatic boycott. You're the foreign affairs critic for the NDP saying the same thing. Um, how do we go forward from here? What do you expect from the federal government? Well, what I, what I would really like to see is them to stop Stop this inertia that we're seeing with our with our China our China plan. You know, and when I say that, what I mean is that rather than make a decision on Huawei, rather than make a decision on a on a diplomatic boycott, rather than make a decision on you know so many aspects of our relationship with China, the government just seems to keep kicking the can down the road and be unwilling to take that step. So, so what I'm looking for from the government right now is some some concrete action. You know, yesterday I had a I had a um, interview with one of the uh, liberal members of the government and and he said yeah all options are on the table well well the Beijing Olympics is is you know just a few months away like we're out of time for all options are on the table some decisions have to be made some leadership has to be shown hopefully a new ambassador can be can be appointed uh, very very quickly because of course this is a very important file and the government can actually start making some decisions and start doing what we need them to do and that is in fact govern that is Edmonton NDP MP Heather McPherson, who is the foreign affairs critic uh, for the NDP government, uh, banned from attending China, talking about a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Beijing Winter Games set to kick off this February. So we spent a little time earlier this morning talking about the latest polling showing that some Canadians won't allow unvaccinated family members or friends to attend um Christmas gatherings, and, and, and we sort of started talking about the division, right? And uh, the whole, <laughs> the climate that we're living in right now, um, which to me, uh, I think is as divided as I can remember. Um, you know, we've got protests over this and protests over that, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, the way that a government responds to a situation like this um, means a lot, 
According to our next guest, Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. He joins us now. Ken, thanks so much for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us. Great to be with you completely. So we're going to be talking about protesting and how a government handles it, but just taking a look at the climate that we're in right now. I mean, it seems super heated to me, but historically, are we at a time where we're more divided than before? I mean, where does this sort of rank in terms of an angry citizenry? I think it's more intense in a whole variety of different fields. We've had other times, you know, the 1960s and all the protests about racial issues and women's rights issues and things of that sort go back in the 1970s over over separation and those kinds of possibilities. You know, it wasn't so long ago we had the you know the the one percent or the 99 percent movements yep. and uh, protests against the the G8 summits in Toronto, which were very violent and what have you. I think what's happening now is there's there's more protests and they're more intense and they're more personal. And I think we're being challenged about uh, everything from how we use our automobiles and how we use energy and whether we have pipelines and whether we develop the oil and gas fields. And then we have indigenous rights and a whole bunch of other things on top of that. And the whole business of vaccines and vaccine mandates has added a nastiness that we haven't actually seen for quite a while. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, we've had times when it's been as intense, but nothing where it's been as sharp and as divisive as I think we're feeling right now. And why, I mean, everybody's got to protest for something, right? I mean, like you say, I mean, the list of things that's being protested right now, it's never ending. Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, part of the problem is, is that when you, when you let protesters win, yeah. if, if uh, five people can go and sort of shut down a highway and they, they get attention to their issues and their concerns, everybody else says, well, my issues is as big as that one. And so the media gives a staggering amount of attention sometimes to very, very small protests. You know, 20 people show up and do something, and, and you know, the government doesn't do anything, or the yeah. police don't do anything, or the railway gets shut down for weeks or days on end. You know, we have to be really, really careful about this, because otherwise you're, you're taking the decision-making process away from the people who vote in elections, where it properly belongs, into the hands of radicalized minorities of one form or the other. Doesn't matter what side they're on, what issue they're on. We did not elect these people to make these decisions, and that's what happens with protests: is they become decision-making exercises in the absence of real government courage and determination. Now, protesting—it's a fine line for any government or any law enforcement agency to walk because. It's a key component of any functioning democracy. We welcome it, we embrace it, we encourage it. Even civil disobedience has a long history in, in, in our country. So where is that line? And um, it seems to me and it moves. That line isn't clearly defined. It depends on the cause sometimes. It depends on the people that are involved in the government of the day. It also depends on whether the government is mildly in favor of the protest or right. not. So, for example, when you had the anti-vaxxers sort of protesting in front of hospitals and closing on access to ambulances, the government immediately said, we're going to pass legislation, we're going to ban this, this is outrageous. If you have a case in Ferry, Ferry Creek in British Columbia, where the protesters have been shutting down illegal, perfectly legal fog-logging activity for months on end, or the what's what supporters who in Ontario shut down the, the, the CPR or CN rail line for a week or more at a time, and government doesn't do anything about it, and you know, government is in favor of indigenous rights and environmental issues, so they let that go. But they're not in favor of the vaccine issues, so they go after them. So right now, people don't know. They don't know what the government's going to stop and not stop. 
And that's where we have a real problem coming with knowing the constraints on protest and the limits on protest, and in fact, the effectiveness of protest. So how do we how do we make that better? I mean, we are a country of laws. That's what we always tell everybody. That's what we're telling China right now. Rule of law matters to us. Um, so do we just need to say this is the law, these are the rules, and everybody follows them, and they're not negotiable? Yeah, I think pretty much. I mean, in the sense that over time we'll define those kinds of things. Um, I don't think there's very many people who think that shutting down the main line of the railway for a week or so is acceptable for you know, particularly when it represents a tiny group of people who are in sympathy of somebody 3,000 miles away. I mean, that's ridiculous that the government didn't do something more about that sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have to realize that there's limits on what the police can do, that the police are required to act as though essentially they're live on television at every moment. Well, this is the thing, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a new standard, you know. Assume you're going to be live on television all the time. And if you're not, you know, if you're not behaving that way, you're going to get in trouble. So we have developments like the Wet'suwet'en situation recently where the police showed up with repeating rifles. And at that point, there's absolutely nothing that the protesters had done to suggest they were going to be violent or armed or likely to sort of come strike back at the police in any particular way. And actually, it ended up discrediting Canada internationally. You ended up having a whole bunch of headlines all around the world showing a very small number of unarmed protesters being sort of manhandled um, by police officers with with, with uh, automatic rifles, and Canada ended up losing its credibility in that particular case. So the, the police presence has to be commensurate with the situation, but those protests that are illegal have to be shut down. And the people, if they if have more power to them, if they, they're willing to get arrested for their cause, then no problem. They go to court and they get sentenced to jail, well, no problem there either. That's the consequence. Right now, we kind of live in a consequence-free country, you know, yeah. where people are not being held responsible for their own actions. And I think the problem is is that we, we have to allow protests to, to flourish. We have to allow people to speak out. We need more people speaking out about more things. But there has to be a limit. They, they can't impose that will, and they can't change and force government to back down in any particular way like they're trying to do now. Are there any examples of the perfect protest? Has that ever happened where protesters get their point across, they get what they want out of their protest, and at the same time law and order is respected, and everybody goes home thinking, hey, that went the way it's supposed to go? I mean, that's sort of not the way it works, is it? Well, it is, actually, and here's here's the interesting point. Um, I think one of the most effective protests we've seen in recent Canadian memory was actually Idle No More. And you'll remember Idle No More had more than 2,000 or 3,000 events across the country. The worst one was sort of something that stalled traffic for a couple of hours. Yeah. So the interventions were very mild. The vast majority were, were sort of round dances and peaceful celebrations. People gave their speeches and whatever. And you think, well, what were they after? People said Idle No More has no point. There's no particular agenda. Idle No More was about convincing Indigenous people to speak up. And since Idle No More, they've been doing this constantly in schools, high schools, universities, colleges, governments, politics, public affairs, business affairs, and all that kind of stuff. Idle No More was extremely, extremely successful in those sort of protests. And if you actually think back to the gay rights movement, they were also successful, not because they shut down the railways or things of that sort of interferes with other people's lives, it's because they their big protest was simply standing up in public and showing people who they were. Mm-hmm. That was their protest. And standing up and being that courageous was, in fact, a, an act of defiance and strength and great courage. So we have examples of how people actually make real effective change. The problem here is that we have an increasing number of groups who know they represent a tiny minority. Right. They're the, 
extreme radical environmentalists who aren't really, you know, interested in what the general public thinks. They've got their agenda. They want to shut things down. Some of them are absolute anarchists. They just like to see things mucked up. <laughs> they like to see, you know, mess and, and chaos in the political realm. So those ones are quite fascinating uh, to sort of see. But we have had successful protests. We can have more of them in the future. We can get this right, but we need governments to sort of act fairly decisively, not violently, and not outside the law themselves, and not in a way that brings disrepute onto their authority. But they have to be firm and clear. There are rules. We're going to follow the rules, and you have to you have to abide by the law. And I guess the risk, Ken, is if we don't sort of draw that line in the sand and say, okay, this has gone as far as it's going to go, it will continue to escalate until we get to a point where uh, we have absolute catastrophes on our hands. I have actually heard people say in dozens of different sectors now that they should follow the tactics of the Wet'suwet'en supporters who shut down the rail line and showed how they could bring the country to its knees. And absolutely, there's a real concern. We end up with a paralysis in, in, in government and a paralysis in policymaking and the, and the wishes of a small minority imposed on the majority. And that's not how democracy works. Ken, great discussion. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. You're more than welcome. Take care. Ken Coates, who is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. Kind of hard to argue with what Ken's saying, right? And I think you take a look at the number of different, I don't know, you want to call them causes, do you want to call them movements, whatever you want to call them, but reasons why people have been protesting, uh, and the list is many (laughs) over the past few years, right? There's one after another. And um, I think he's right in saying, okay, we, we, we respect the right to protest, and we respect the right for you to have your voices heard. But there are ways to do it. And when you cross the line, there will be consequences. We're going to be talking about Agnes McPhail. She was elected to the House of Commons 100 years ago yesterday. And it was a significant moment in Canadian history. So here to tell us all about it, we have Joan Sangster, who is the author of several books about women's history and politics, and Vanier Professor Emeritus at Trent University. Joan, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, a really remarkable Canadian. Um, looking forward to digging into her history a little bit and her impact on our country. But let's just start with Agnes McPhail. Uh, just tell us her background and how she ended up being the first female MP in our country. Sure. She grew up on a farm in uh, southwestern Ontario, fairly struggling farm, so she knew the difficulties of farm life, and she really wanted to represent farmers in Parliament. It's one of the reasons she got into um, politics, but she trained as a teacher, which was um, important to her. She wanted some kind of career, and then just after World War I, got involved in the United Farmers of Ontario. And because of that involvement, she ran in her local riding in, for the 1921 election. Hmm. Um, and 1921, now, in terms of, uh, you know, trailblazing, uh, in, women had only been given the right to vote in this country, what, for, for two years at that time, two, three years? That's right. Um, most women got the vote uh, in 1918, and yeah. then in 1919 they passed legislation so women could run for Parliament as well. Um, now, she beat out 20 men 
running for the nomination um, in order to become the candidate. But even after that, the party still had some doubts and tried to encourage her not to jump into the race, right? That's absolutely right. She had a really tough uh, nomination process. But once she was victorious, the writing executive had her in and talked to her and suggested she might just resign or pull back. And she was not going to do that. She That was not who Agnes McPhail was. <laughs> and she uh, she said, no, she would run. And she did and got elected. Um, and her career, I think, you know, and you make the point, it seems to have one constant theme, fighting for the underdog, right? She was always invested in that. Absolutely. When she first got into Parliament, uh, she really wanted to represent farmers, although she did run on a farmer-labor platform or ticket. And she often spoke up about the difficulties of farm life and what she saw as the corporate interests, which were um, benefiting, unlike farmers were from the economy. But she increasingly became vocal, too, about workers' issues and workers' rights, um, visiting striking mining in Glace Bay in 1925, and then coming back to talk about the terrible conditions uh, there in Parliament. So she she took on labour issues more and more, and social issues like pensions, for example, prison reform. Prison reform, yeah. Yes. Prison reform was a really big cause, and she was very influential in that area, too. She was, particularly after her trip to Kingston Penitentiary, which was considered a little scandalous at the time, a woman going off to a men's prison, and then coming back and talking about the brutal punishment in that prison. So she was criticized for that, and um, she just kept on, kept on with that, and then later on also became certainly an advocate for reform in in women's prisons as well. Um, And and that that was sort of... I mean, that was her cause, was to sort of make the the lot of, you know, all Canadians better. And she really was effective in, in improving conditions for, as you say, workers and, and prisoners. She, she was actually really, really influential. She was, particularly around prison reform, because it was such a courageous stand. She was also... Uh, influential in terms of parliament and uh, helping in terms of getting pensions passed, divorce reform so that divorce could be sought equally by men and women. And she was very well known in the 1930s uh, for her stance on war and militarism. She became very involved in the peace movement and spoke out against militarism in Canada. And that too was not a popular cause at the time. She received a tremendous amount of criticism from fellow MPs who accused her of you know, not being patriotic or loyal enough. But again, she kept on with that. Yeah, uh, remarkable. How long did her political career last? How long was she involved? Well, after she was defeated um, as an MP, she did some other things, and then she was elected for East York as a provincial MPP okay. for the CCF. Uh, in Ontario, and she served in that in the Ontario legislature as well. You know, and when you take a look at anybody who's involved in history going back a hundred years, there's always controversy based on um, what was quite prominent at the time. And she also has some of that in her background, talking about eugenics. Now, she wasn't a leader on that front as some of the other um, politicians of the day were, but she certainly um, came out in support of it, didn't she? She did. Um, I 
actually have seen very little that she said about it. Um, somebody found a quote for me from the United Farmers of Ontario where she supported it. So, no, she was not one of the leaders, and there really was a range of opinion on eugenics among all the population and feminists too. But like many people, she fell uh, prey to those mm-hmm. ideas, which we now find quite uh, abhorrent. Um, and she was the first to appear on the ten first female to appear on a Canadian currency, correct? Other than the Queen. That's right. Yes. And this was a commemorative ten dollar bill uh, in twenty seventeen. Right. Great story, Joan. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Nice to talk to you. That's Joan Sangster, who is author of several books about women's history and politics and Vanier Professor Emeritus at Trent University. And yeah, Agnes McVale, 100 years ago yesterday, she, uh, well, she broke the glass ceiling of the day, I guess, becoming the first female federal MP in Canada's history. And doing so only two or three years after women were given the right to vote in this country, if you can believe it or not, given the right to vote, won the right to vote, I think is a better way of putting it. Um, And she, uh, as you heard, she beat out, I think it was 24 men were competing for the nomination of her party in that election. She beat them. She won. And even then, when she was the duly elected candidate for the party, um, Party leadership came to her and said, you know what, we just don't think a woman can win. Can you can you rethink this? Do you think maybe there's something else you could do? And she said no. And she ran in the general election and she won that too. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.